LT is my name, and I'm going to pray for us. So let's pray together. Father, it is so good to hear the rain. Just a reminder, we're so dependent upon you for everything, particularly our salvation. So thank you for your grace to us in that. No doubt we woke up this morning, Father, with our concerns, our thoughts, our circumstances rushing at us in our minds like wild beasts. And so we thank you for a few short moments this afternoon just to slow down, to be with each other, to have your word that we might hear you speak. So please, Father, speak to us by the power of your spirit, we pray for the glory of your Son, in us, your church here, and the world. Amen. Uh, There's a great story about Alexander the Great, uh, one of the the great warrior, conqueror, sort of king, who conquered sort of most of the known world of his time. And uh, in, in the thick of one battle, one young soldier, who was apparently pretty good at being a soldier, although young, became fearful in the battle and so escaped to a cave. When you deserted in Alexander the Great's armies, you were usually killed. But for some reason, this young man was found and brought to Alexander the Great. And apparently Alexander the Great had some compassion on this young man, obviously looking upon him, seeing that he was fearful. And so he asked him his name. What is your name, young man? He said, Alexander. Kind of in a bit of disbelief, he he asked him again, but shouted at him, what is your name? And he shouted back, Alexander. And it's like the the disbelief was heightened and he said, no, what is your name? And this time the young man in a more sheepish, kind of quieter voice said, Alexander. And at that point, Alexander the Great became sort of ferociously angry, picked up a sword and said to him, change your ways or change your name. Alexander the Great was horrified that this man would live in a way that would make him look bad and not live up to his name, the man who had the reputation of being a great warrior, king and ruling conqueror. We have taken on a new name of return to Christ. We've taken on the name of Jesus Christ and we live under his banner which means we've, we've been changed. Our, our hearts, our allegiance has been transformed from ourselves to him. And so we should live up to the name under which we live and which we live by. Our name should change our ways or our behaviour. What we believe should affect our behaviour. Our creed should, in fact, affect our conduct. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about this afternoon. We are to be who we really are in Christ. And particularly with the two case studies we've got before us in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, in terms of sorting out conflicts amongst us as a church, and also in terms of sex. So we are to be who we really are in Christ, so we sort out conflicts And we use our bodies for God, not 
sexual immorality. So we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, uh, which is entitled, God Still Loves the Church. And you might be wondering, what about why, why the still? Why does he still love the church? It's because as we've jumped into this letter to this church, we've seen uh, that the relationships in the church and their behavior is like they've kind of slipped into an unholy, unloving, rotting kind of mess. And so what we're constantly seeing is that God still loves his church. And so this week, we're going to see that again. So as I said, uh, two case studies to think about how we're to live out who we really are in Christ. So let's look at the first one. And that is we are to sort out conflicts because we are new in Christ. Let's go back to chapter 6, verse 1. If any of you has a legal dispute against another, do you dare go to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So there's an issue going on here, and another issue in the life of a church. It seems that probably two people, maybe two men, have had a conflict with each other, and they've dealt with it in Paul's mind in the wrong way. Two brothers inside the church have taken their issue outside the church to be dealt with by the outside courts, and he's horrified by that. So his basic point is suing Saints suing saints in secular courts for minor issues is sinful. And so he's horrified. Dare you, he says, go to court before the unrighteous. So you've got these two blokes, just imagine, coming to church on Sunday, great music, worshipping God, fully engaged in worshipping God, singing, yes, God, Lord of all, or the Aussie version, uh, God sort of shuffling your feet, Lord of all, um, but active, together worshiping God on a Sunday but through the week they take their hands out or their voices out in conflict with each other and not within the church outside the church and it's just another example as we've seen week after week after week that this church have got things all the wrong order the reverse order so chapter four they were judging their leaders on the outside when you're meant to judge on the inside which only God could do so their judgment of their leaders was wrong Chapter 5, though I should have made a judgment call on the man in deep immorality, yet they weren't even making the right judgment call inside the church, yet the outsiders would have made the, the right judgment call. And here, they should have been making a judgment call about what's happening in the life of church, which they could do, yet they're taking that outside the church to be judged by the unrighteous who have a different standard to how we're meant to be living. Complete wrong order again got everything back to front. So what is Paul saying in terms of this issue of taking people to court? Well, let's think about what he's not saying. He's not saying it means that as Christians we can never take someone to court. He's not also saying that we should do, always deal with every issue within the church. Quite clearly, in light of the Royal Commission, that's where churches, in fact, you would have to say every church, has got it wrong, particularly in the areas of child abuse. There was sin in the church that was actually crime that necessarily should have been dealt with outside the church. So he's not saying that. He's not saying that somehow um, we hide church issues uh, which should be dealt with more publicly. He's talking about civil issues, not necessarily criminal issues. And that's why we have the 
Romans 13, authorities appointed to deal with particular issues. So what issues are, is he talking about? The, the idea there in verse 7, in verse 8, where Paul used the word cheat, it could be defraud. So it seems in Paul's mind, the particular issue in the church here is one around property or money or finance. But you get some other clues as well. So verse 2, he says, uh, smallest cases. Verse 3, ordinary matters. Verse 4, issues of this life. And verse 5, issues between brothers. Just, it seems, individuals. I don't know if you've ever lived in a, a unit block where there's always that person who spots those things that should be fixed and it's a really big deal and they should really be fixed. I lived in a kind of communal living for a while and there was a man on site who was the property man and he was meticulous, which is what you want a property man to be. But sometimes it was just a bit too ahead of the curve. So, so one day he turned up at our door and said to us in a bit of a sort of a gruff voice, Look, have you got a visitor? Well, you have because they've parked in the wrong place. And we sort of said, well, no, we don't have a visitor here at the moment. But sure enough, 30 seconds later, our visitor turned up. Just one of those people who really leapt onto something and made it probably bigger than it actually really was. And I suspect that that's in every one of us, isn't it? We do tend to make small issues that become big issues for us. So I wonder if you thought about your week this week. Could you think about an issue that as you think about it in light of eternity and the gospel and who you are in Christ, you think, hang on, I think I just spent a little bit too much time dwelling on that, thinking about that, talking about that, acting to resolve that in light of the bigger issues. Maybe it was even conflicts that you were holding on to. Things of least significance that we blow out of proportion like conflicts that we have with people. Things that we start off small but turn very big. Things that actually we should sort out within the family and that we have the resources with each other in the gospel itself and Jesus to sort out. So two ways to deal with conflicts. Sort it out with the person you're in conflict with. Look what Paul says in verses 2 to 3. Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest case? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention ordinary matters? Now, I haven't fully grasped what Paul's actually talking about there in terms of we as Christians joining Jesus in judgment. But it sounds amazing that we will. We should know our place even above the angels at that point. That somehow we'll be in, engaged in the eternal judgment of the world with Jesus alongside him. And so you see the argument Paul's making, the greater to the lesser. So if we're going to do that greater eternal things, surely we can do the lesser temporary thing. The earthly judgment of issues that are small amongst us. He's saying, yes, you can. And in fact, you're claiming to be wise, as the Corinthians were claiming. And in fact, you actually are and have wise people amongst you who you could actually help arbitrate with you if you needed that. But as Christians, we are to sort out our conflicts. And secondly, we are to forgive and to forget. Verse 7, 
Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? This is one of the really pointy ends of what Paul's argument's talking about. Because that's the gospel right there, isn't it? The gospel says to us, someone, that is the Lord Jesus, God in Christ, took on injustice when he didn't deserve to so that we could be set free from sin. If you're claiming that for yourself, how can you not offer that to someone else and do that for someone else? And forgive and forget means not bringing it up to use as leverage against someone else, not bringing it up at all before other people. Literally forgive and forget. See, what Paul's saying is to demand our rights or my rights as a Christian is diametrically opposed to Jesus' teaching and example. Completely opposed to it. That's why Paul says you've had an epic moral failure. It's like the gospel's been defeated in your midst as a church because you're not forgiving. Uh, We've just started renting again. I can tell you, when you're engaged in being a renter, being a tenant, you very quickly want to know your rights and you very quickly want to start demanding them. I can see a few smiling faces. And that's me, absolutely through and through. We can obsess over issues and we can even, especially as Aussies, be passive-aggressive. You know, we just hold on to things and passively act or don't act towards people in the way that you should or shouldn't. Paul's saying we're family. We know Christ. We know the gospel. We have the resources to deal with whatever small issues we have with each other. So deal with them. I don't know what conflicts are going on within this gathering. It's a great thing at the moment. No doubt there are, as in every family. Don't let the day end without sorting out some issue you might have with someone else. And if you need to invite someone else in to help you, do that. But here's a few questions to think about. When was the last time you gave up your right to something? When was the last time you absorbed injustice? When was the last time you were cheated? Thinking, that happened to Jesus for me, of course I can do that for someone else. My experience in church life, particularly as a pastor, is that we're really bad at this. The easy option is the easy option, and that is not to deal with issues but to leave a church. You rob everyone, especially yourself, and the person you're in conflict with, the opportunity to grow together in Christ. Paul says we sort out our issues. And he says, be warned, verses 9 and 10. Be warned very clearly. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? All of a sudden he's saying if you're not sorting out conflicts or sorting them out in the wrong way, you're in there with those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. In there with Verse 10, uh, end of verse 9, don't be deceived, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now, kind of if you're like me, you probably see most of that listening and think, yeah, sure, I understand they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's saying also those who withhold forgiveness of people 
who don't deal with conflicts because you want to be king and you won't let Jesus be king. There's a strong warning there. Will not inherit, do not be deceived. And Paul's talking about not isolated acts, but but a whole way of life pursued persistently in those areas. And I'm sorry if you hear this this afternoon and you think, okay, that's just typical. I thought the Christians, it's just about the list of don'ts. And if you don't do the don'ts, you'll get into heaven. Don't hear that today. Now, Paul's saying, writing to these people who have already accepted Christ and his perfect performance for them to get into heaven, and he's calling them then to live up to who they claim to be. Come and talk to me later about that if you wanted to know more about what it means to truly enter heaven. But Paul says, yes, be warned, sort out your conflicts, but he says, because remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. There's a prior promise there that's primary amidst all this thing. This chapter's pulsing with the gospel and what Jesus has done. Verse 2, 3, 9, he says, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know, don't be deceived. What comes as the solution to this behaviour is right thinking. Remembering, they've got spiritual amnesia, they've forgotten who they are. And Paul's reminding them, particularly, look at verse 11. And some of you used to be like this, used to be, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. But you were washed, he says, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. What a fantastic word. But, you used to be like this, but... This amazing miracle happens so that you're washed. Now God looks upon you, not filthy, but completely clean in his eyes. Whoever you were, whatever you become, whatever you were doing, gone, washed clean, sanctified. God picked you up out of that mess, washed you up. You belong to him. You're set aside for him now, sanctified. Justified is, the, is that word which has the, the double miracle, just as if you've never sinned. Yeah, that's one miracle, isn't it? Even though we have horrendously, extensively, persistently, because of Jesus' death for us, God makes a declaration so that he looks upon you just as if you've never sinned. And the double miracle is not just that, but also just as if you've always obeyed when you haven't wipes the slate clean and then writes Christ's obedience on it for you. That's who you are if you've trusted Jesus because of his perfect performance for you and his death for you at the cross. We don't have to beat ourselves up because of our past. We don't have to minimise or deny the reality of what's happened in our past. We don't have to rewrite our history to make ourselves look better than we were. We don't have to be paralysed by regret or remorse or distract ourselves from what we were or what we used to be in those regretful, remorseful moments by being busy or taking some substance. We can face the past and not be devastated. We can confess and not be fearful, all because of who we are in Christ and his perfect performance for us. Because we failed to perform anywhere near perfect 
Remember who you are in Christ. And if you do, you will sort out your conflicts in the life of church. But also he turns to the second case study. I feel like we're going to really race through this. But thankfully in chapter 7, we're going to deal with this issue a bit more. But the second case study is around the issue of sexual immorality. We use our bodies for God, not sexual immorality, because we belong to Christ. So verses 12 to 13. Everything's permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. These Corinthians had taken on these slogans for themselves. Everything's permissible. And Paul wants to qualify and say, well, no, actually, might be permissible, not right and wrong, but it's not beneficial, not, not helpful for you or other people. You might be exercising your freedom, but that freedom can turn to enslave you very clearly. You might think the body and have a low view of the body so you can use it as you want, as if somehow we're not our body, we're just our soul. But he says, no, no, you'll be raised up with Christ as he was raised up bodily, so will you be. The body is important. These people had a low view of the body, and Paul wants to say, no, your body although not all of who you are is you, is important, and how you use it now does echo into eternity. Absolutely. You cannot use it how you want. You must use it for the Lord. And then he goes on to say, verse 14, God raised up the Lord and will also raise up, uh, raise up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one with her? With her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit. Because you're a Christian, you become part of Christ's body. How is it possible to go get a prostitute Think that you can have sex with her in your car, for example, while Jesus is sitting in the back seat. It's unimaginable, isn't it? And that's exactly the kind of thing what Paul is talking about. You, you are part of Christ's body. He's with you. He goes on to say, God's spirit is dwelling in you. You're the temple of God. How can you join Christ with a prostitute? How can you engage in sexual immorality? That is any sexual activity outside the context of marriage. And so he goes on to say, and quote Genesis 2, the two become one flesh. You somehow unite yourself with the other person when you're having sex outside of marriage in a unique and special way. Somehow you're binding yourself to them that it's very hard to rip yourself apart when you have sex with them. Because what sex means to me, a, a physical expression of a whole life commitment you make to someone, a settled, permanent, long-term commitment where you say, I commit myself to you, all I am and all I have. Possessions, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically. 
And when you do that, you bind yourself to the person. So if you're doing that physically and not doing the rest, it becomes very complicated, very hard to unbind yourself. That's the gift of sex. There's a one flesh, a joining together, a, a, a bond that happens because it's meant to be an expression of a whole person commitment to another person. And so if you're having sex outside of marriage, without that commitment, it doesn't build relationship. It destroys relationship. Paul says our bodies belong to Christ. We're united to him. And so he's saying again, remember whose you are. Verses 19 to 20. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you've, who you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We are the temple of God, corporately as a church, but Paul says here, individually as well. So he says, if that's the case, verse 18, you are to run from sexual immorality. Other translations say flee. So run, run, run. Joseph, a woman grabbed his coat and he ran out of there. Has someone grabbed your heart? If they have, run. Run a million miles away. Do everything you can to make sure that you don't get caught in the grip of sexual immorality. And at this point, it is easy to focus on the obvious sins around this area. Adultery, using pornography. But I have to and must ask and focus on those things. Are you committing adultery? Are you looking at pornography in any form? Are you having sex with prostitutes? If so, Paul says, run. Run from those things. Because it's destroying your soul and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul never leaves us with the warning as the last word because it's never the first word. So again, he says, remember who you are. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. For the joy set before him, he gave his life for you and you belong to him. Give your life in wholehearted service of him. Give your body in wholehearted service to him. I found this quote a few years ago where it said, people who stall in their personal growth often have counterproductive, soft addictions that stand in their way of growth and having the life they say they want. It can be a simple thing such as watching TV instead of finishing a project. Yeah, I like that idea of, you know, kind of soft addictions. You know, not kind of really full-on hard ones, but just soft ones. 
But, but I think you know what, what it means, doesn't it? Just those things that, you know, not that harmless, kind of those daily things you do, but you really know they are getting in the way of a whole bunch of things that are healthy for you and your soul. And drawing you more into unhealthy things. C.S. Lewis says, you know, we are half-hearted Christians. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambitions. When infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum. Because he cannot imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. He says, we're far too easily pleased. Because we forget who we are. And what we have in Christ. So many reasons that are drivers for us into the era of sexual immorality. For us as blokes, often it's Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, sick. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, sick. Very basic primitive things that are because of our body. That drive us to do things in a way that destroy our soul. You can't not say that the body and soul aren't one. Of course they are. Men, do you know yourself and what you turn to when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed and sick? Spend some time thinking about but two gospel truths to finish with. Firstly, thankfulness. Thankfulness is the most powerful motive for our physical devotion to God. Thankfulness for God's redeeming work for us in Christ, that we're washed, sanctified, justified. Secondly, our union with Christ. That's, that's spiritual power. That's a growth hormone we have in our heart, soul and body. So that we can live. I think often as Christians we're great at thinking about the gospel and its effect for the past. Great at thinking about our gospel, the gospel and its effect for the future. Yes, we'll get to heaven. What, what about the gospel for now? I think this is what Paul's trying to help us think about. Tempted in this area, in the life of crisis and conflict, the gospel's effective for now, and the most effective thing you have is the power and presence of Christ with you by his spirit. Be motivated by Christ's work for you. Now you've got spiritual power because you've got the power and presence of the Holy Spirit with you. We are to be who we are in Christ, so we sort out conflicts and we use our body for God, not sexual immorality. Let's pray.